Chapter 7, 1995-1997 As PC sales surge, growing at a rate of 60% in 1996, the enormity of the internet becomes widely realized and will soon dwarf the impact of everything that came before it. The apps and our office team were 110% focused on what could have been the last months of Office 96 as part of our 12-24 plan of parallel releases. The product turned out to be much more difficult to finish, and the new Office-centric organization met with much more resistance than planned. On top of that, Office 95 took our entire test team to get out the door, putting us behind on quality. In other words, the 24-month project was going to take longer, but we did not yet know how much longer. Something about Windows 95 shipping changed Microsoft, especially at the top and how the company thought strategically. It was as though the success of Windows 95 came the need, though not necessarily the ability, to think big thoughts and to develop big plans for the future. The products we were working on were a given, but just not interesting. Everything interesting was yet to begin. Section 40, Creating the First Real Office. Code is like dinosaurs. Me and a memo trying to be a thought leader. It was as though we had not been working on Office 96 for the past year. With all the excitement of Windows 95, oh, and Office 95, the conversation quickly turned to asking, what would Office do next? After the release, we hadn't even finished and was late. It was kind of weird. In a relatively short time, many things changed. Mike Maples retired, and with that, a slight change in the organization to accommodate. Microsoft Research was a few years old and occupying more and more of Bill G's headspace. Windows NT 4.0 was on a path to completion, and with that, a solid spot in the minds of IT leaders, especially for the most anticipated business product of all, Microsoft Exchange Email. The much-anticipated Cairo project began to fade in interest, and what became more interesting, and ultimately more important, would be bringing the Windows 95 user interface to the Windows NT operating system kernel with NT 4. The browser war between Internet Explorer and Netscape and the broader competition over back-end server technologies for the Internet was well underway. Windows would kick off a series of updates to Windows 95, primarily for the benefit of holiday or back-to-school PC sales, Windows 98, Windows 98 SE, and finally Windows ME. For Office, by many accounts, it appeared as though Office had successfully taken the leadership position in the new product category of suites. We were still paranoid about competition, especially that Lotus was now owned by IBM and had, a, and had a huge sales motion behind it. That seems like a lot of work going on, and it was. But from a company strategy perspective, it was as though that was all known, and thus, for lack of a better word, boring. The real excitement and interesting work was answering the question from Bill G, what is next? There was an almost insatiable demand to know our plans for a few years from now, not our current development efforts. It was a rather sudden, but soon our attitude and company dialogue was less about the products under development and more about what products should be under development. The concern, or even fear, was not losing in the next release cycle, but in the ones that came later. Intellectually, that seemed prudent. But practically, it was enormously frustrating, as I would alternate between significant execution challenges today and vague discussions about an infeasible future. There were people in parts of the company that had what were considered great visions for where to go, but it always seemed to me like there was a practical ways to get to 90% in much less time. Others had ideas for how things should be done, 
But clearly, there was no way to build those now because of some limitation, like how different everything else would need to be to be able to build that particular innovation. Innovations like the projects from General Magic captivated Bill G. and everyone, but were not selling well, even with a big IPO. As I'd become accustomed, a failure in the marketplace was not a failure for Bill G., so that meant we needed to treat it like a potential competitor. I needed to find a way to engage in this dialogue and to represent applications and productivity effectively as thought leadership, a popular buzzword. We were still deep in building Office 96, the second part of the 1224 strategy of working on a pair of releases in parallel. In fairness to me, this was occupying every cycle I had. We were almost two years into the project by the end of 1995, and it was clear we were going to ship much later than planned. Yet no one really wanted to talk about Office 96. Rather, everyone wanted to talk about what would be next, what would be big and bold. To us, Office 96 was huge. The scale of the project was greater than anything we'd ever done, greater than anything done in the industry. Office 96 did not have any of the a priori constraints of Office 94, other than shipping as a suite all at the same time. At the start of any release in early 1994, product teams were thinking big. This time, in addition to each app, there was also the new office product unit team, OPU, and they were thinking big. Aligning these big thoughts would be a big add to all of our challenges. Our desktop applications process was a unique expression of a product development lifecycle. It was not the historic and inappropriately applied moniker of a waterfall, a legacy process where first requirements are gathered, then specifications written, then code developed, then testing signs off. The online version includes this classic waterfall diagram from 1970. It was also not what one would think of as agile in more current terms, when products are increasingly built up over time constraints by short cycles or sprints, primarily because we took a long time, though some would say because we did not change the software in response to external inputs along the way as well. Throughout the development schedule, the product was kept stable and usable by the team, but not in a fully shippable state until defined milestones and beta tests. The apps and office process of setting large aspirations that span 18 to 24 months and scaling the implementation as the project evolved was unique at Microsoft and clearly the source of the stability of the products and the position in the market that continues to benefit the company today. Apple remains a lone exception and has brilliantly mastered a delicate balancing act of consistent yearly releases, which is unbelievably amazing, and long-term product plans patiently released over multiple years. Business is a social science, and as such, drawing causal relationships between processes used at different companies is risky thinking. Whatever one might call our process, it just became known as the office process, the assumption Bill G. had was that whatever we were able to do to articulate to him was already booked. On the one hand, this was great, and it meant he could count on us to deliver. On the other hand, it was incredibly frustrating to him for two reasons. First, the ability to articulate a product extremely concretely, literally with early working code that he knew would ship, screenshots, and endless specifications, meant it was going to feel done and immune to his tweaks and inputs. Second, the very existence of a working and reliable product meant that it was time to move on. It was almost a curse of being perceived as reliable and focused on execution. Still, we were very late and didn't even know how late we were. Bill G. and Nathan Mirvold, leading Microsoft Research, were focused on five years out or more. There was nothing special about that time other than it was longer than anyone was already working. We used to joke that if 
From the very start, a project took three years to complete, then everything beyond that was infinity years away. A project that someone said would take five years would never finish. The world would be so different by then, and the choices we make so different. Why solidify plans now? That argument did not hold water at all. We had to do something to move this discussion forward. We started writing more and taking more risks and talking about the future, a future we were not quite working on yet. It was uncomfortable. First, we set out to cast Office 96 in more futuristic language and goals. In other words, reskin Office 96, not as what we were doing, but what we could be doing next on top of it. We called this Project X. Nothing about Project X existed at all. It was simply a name and a memo to have a discussion. Brad Weed emailed Brad W.E., and the design team even mocked up the ideas in Project X, and we demonstrated it at the company meeting and in a vision presentation at Comdex in 1995. Brad began hiring designers from the new programs in interaction design popping up all over Europe, particularly in UK and the Netherlands, including from the Royal College of Art, where Apple's Johnny Ive has long been affiliated. To kick off the process, I made my own demo, a single screen illustrating the concepts I thought we needed to show off. It is comical in the use of clip art and PowerPoint, but it was a good conversation starter with design. The online version includes that original PowerPoint Project X drawing. Project X took over the desktop with a series of new metaphors. There were filing cabinets that contained binders that could be constructed by searching across all your documents, not just physically storing them. Calendaring with a timeline view and task management would be easily accessible. It would be easy to have small notes, post-it-like, attached to any item in the system. People were the center of activities, not just documents, with easy access to contact cards. A little teddy bear, perhaps a cousin of Clippy, was always there to help you as an intelligent agent. There were also virtual desktops, so each project a person might be working on could have its own set of tools organized appropriately and then quickly switch between them. All of these were rooted in what we were building for Office 96, but projecting out years if we had more operating system services and synergy and time. Working from this sketch, the designers, after deservedly mocking me, created an interaction sequence that was an ultra-modern skin, so to speak, of the features of Office 96. The designers were the same ones designing the real menus and dialog boxes, so it made sense. And like that, everyone was far more excited in what was to come than anything we had currently were working on. That might seem like a success, but in fact, it quickly blew up, and many across the company became either concerned or needed to know more so they could adjust their plans to fit in with Project X. In some parts of the company, this would be viewed as a huge win. For Office, this was a problem. We not only had to finish Office 96, but we were a big business, and the last thing we needed to do was to need to explain to customers that Office 95 they were just thinking of buying would be obsoleted by the new cool Project X. So I quickly wrote up a memo explaining Project X. Well, I spent most of the memo explaining the features shown at the company meeting and how they related to the work of Office 96. I also used this as a chance to try to align the work of Windows, aka systems, and apps. And quoting from this memo, although this sounds totally drastic, this memo will make it clear we were really building Project X all along, though we lacked a shared vision of how it all fits together. In this memo, we will detail the various technologies and architectural components that make up Project X, who was responsible for designs, and who was tasked with building them. 
While lots of people were excited by Project X, they were less excited by the prospect of trying to align all of our products again after Windows 95, given all the work already going on. In particular, I was learning that the job of aligning fell to Office to align with Windows and not the other way around. Office needs to do a better job of using the new underlying technology in Windows to build applications. Except there weren't any new underlying technologies. What Bill G. wanted to do strategically was repeat the GUI Windows Excel innovation cycle. But what was the next GUI? What was the next app? So back to writing. Realizing that the problem seemed to be not as much a lack of big thoughts, but a lack of ideas for evolving the whole of the platform, meaning Windows and Office. In my memo on the evolution of Office, the key thing I put out there was that while we just finished 1224 of two releases in parallel, then why not 122448 and start working on something four years from now? I wrote that while Office 96 was slipping and the team was reeling from the trauma of trying to do two releases in parallel. We weren't being political as much as trying to put forth some framework for talking about the future that was infinity years away. Nathan Mervold loved it. Quoting from that memo, By betting all or a portion of a team on building 48-month developments into the current product, we are doomed to failure. No group is smart enough about our industry to know what bets to make now in our products today or in order to have them pay off in four years, all on the same product. One way to think about this is to ask what features we were worried about four years ago in Excel and compare that to what ended up in the product. Although there are some things that have been perennially on the list of ads and then cuts, the marketplace clearly did not miss them, though perhaps we regret not having done them for development efficiency reason, for example. We can continue to explore how to just extend our 20-month cycle to 48 months analogs, but it would not be hard to convince me that there would be, we would find a process by which we can work on meaningful features in parallel with our current products. What is needed, though, is a redefinition of the 48-month aspect. Instead of thinking of it in parallel to our current release, we should consider the 48-month time frame to be an independent bet on something that we think, strongly believe, will pay off handsomely in the four-year time frame. In other words, while we should continue to bet largely on the code, process, and architectural aspects of 1224, we must look hard at the current state of the marketplace and products and spend some time of our efforts on a completely different product. As Pete H. likes to remind us, we must be sure that generals are not fighting the last war. What was most important to me was helping not just Bill G. and Nathan M., but the rest of our team see that we were not crazy. So to do so, we took a look at concrete technology approaches to describe all the places in the applications that we made assumptions about how PCs worked and why those needed to change. The reason assumptions needed to change was because Moore's law was firing in all cylinders across CPU, RAM, disk space, along with Metcalfe's law on connected networks becoming increasingly powerful, clearly describing the growing internet. Designing our software for an old world was just dumb. I really liked the idea of documenting the context and assumptions of a product to force rethinking of what makes sense or not. The analogy I used was that code is like a dinosaur implying that the comet that hit our code base was the internet. The assumptions baked into Word, Excel, and PowerPoint make for a long list of potential points of competitive weakness. Disruption was not yet a word in business vocabulary, but that would fit. These assumptions included the following, quoting from the memo. Standalone applications dominate. 
categories consisting of spreadsheet, word processor, graphics, and database. Testing software was an afterthought or a small portion of development at best. Teams were started with two or three programmers, but we reached a limit of about 40. The product architecture was really the work of one guy. Sharing code was hard. Disk-based file formats. Networking limited to file print sharing. CPU-bound applications are the norm. Virtual memory not available. Operating system services are slow. Users can run setup on their own. Documents are primarily printed. Images and documents are primarily adornments. Macros were run in process and for a single application. Most information is stored locally. Document structure is manipulated and created by the user. These shifted the dialogue. These were topics we could discuss across teams and meetings. In a parallel list, the memo offered some ideas for new assumptions we could make about building product software. I realized that Project X had not done enough to incorporate the internet, and so we focused much more on how that changes everything. Further quoting from the memo. Drawing and graphics are the norm, not an exception. Virtual memory replaces disk-based file formats. Multi-stream documents are the norm, along with progressive rendering. Interoperating with internet protocols is a requirement. Programmability should start from higher abstractions than the user interface. Documents will be viewed online. Documents will contain more active user-encoded behavior. Applications need to be easier to set up and install. Knowing the structure of a document is of paramount importance. File formats need to be tagged for upward compatibility. A few more months would pass and the internet would be solidly represented in our products. In fact, we were well into building and innovating an Internet Explorer, Internet Information Server, Microsoft's web server, Internet capabilities across the office applications, and more new products than we could name. This led to a final manifestation of these ideas with a decidedly web-centric view. So a final memo before we got around to actually shipping Office 96 was called Web-Centric Productivity. The online version has some slides representing that memo. In this memo, we articulated many ways that we could build applications to take advantage of the web across storage and management of documents, personalization, collaboration and annotations, solving our setup and deployment problems, and more, yet, and more. We did yet another prototype called Project Stretch to visualize these ideas. As mentioned many times before, I had a disdain for code names. So this was a tongue-in-cheek reference to a famous IBM project that was not commercially successful, but led to many more core technologies for later use in mainframes. The online version includes a video of Project Stretch. Stretch envisioned an office available all the time from any device running in an industry standard browser. It was mid-1996 while Internet Explorer 3 was being developed, and as such, it predates technologies that became essential for creating richer desktop-like user experience. Even scripting was only months old. Technologies like DHTML were years away. HTML as it currently stood only had the most minimal text rendering capabilities, which we found troubling in Office, though we were determined to adopt it. The most interesting strategic bet being made in Internet Explorer 3 was what became ActiveX, which was rooted in OLE technology and thus something that concerned me while also saluting the strategic flag. The prototype became a way to articulate what would eventually lead to products such as SharePoint and OneNote, as well as underlying technologies for sharing and collaboration. 
With this top-down sort of executive long lead effort going on in the background, the real work of building office was taking place. Each and every day was a new challenge in the face of ever-increasing scale. What was once three independent application teams in Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, along with a new product for email and a new team called Office Building Shared Code, had grown to be a single, well-functioning product team. We were still not there, though. Office was late, the team was not gelling, and it was painful. <laughs> 